Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The next big phase of our withdrawal from Afghanistan will be the resettlement of thousands of Afghans into communities across the country. Refugee organizations that deal with the State Department are ramping up their operations and have been told to expect some that have special immigrant visas and as many as 50,000 Afghans without visas. For more on what's next for these Afghan refugees, we'll speak to Michelle Hackman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. We have evacuated tons of Afghans. Many of them are in the final stages of qualifying for what's called a special immigrant visa. That's designed for Afghans who worked alongside the American military, uh, you know, worked at the American embassy. But a lot of people are coming that we evacuated, especially in the early days, who don't necessarily fit a visa category, but who definitely were extremely vulnerable if we left them in Afghanistan. So, you know, I'm talking about women's rights leaders, human, right, human rights activists, people like that, who some of whom we've, we've had third countries agree to take them on, but many of whom will be brought to the United States. And those people are going to need help when they get here. You know, we can't just sort of dump them on the street to fend for themselves. Right. And that's where these organizations come in. Let's focus for a moment, please, if we can, uh, on the visas, because you get the special yeah. immigrant visa and that allows you uh, to get help, social services, as I mentioned, different things like that. But for those that don't have those visas, they're not eligible for that. So uh, uh, the help that comes to them is going to come through private donations and other means. That's exactly right. So, you know, the special immigrant visa holders that I was just talking about, they are treated um, the same way as other refugees coming into the country sort of formally through the refugee program. We help those people you know, find apartments to live in, enroll their kids in school. We give them a certain amount of health care assistance for a couple months, you know, food assistance for a couple months. It's, it's you know, not a huge amount of help. We have this sort of tough love approach to refugees where we say, we're going to try to set you up with a job, but after that, you're kind of on your own. But we can't even do that for a lot of the people that we're bringing in uh, who don't have visas because we just, you know, the government hasn't allotted money to sort of provide those services to them, but the Biden administration wants them to receive many of those services. And so it's sort of asking these these refugee resettlement organizations to step up and make it work somehow. And and, and these uh, programs all also don't result in any permanent immigration status. Is that for both of them or, or how is that part going to work out? So visa holders, if you have a visa and you come to the United States, that results in a green card. If you come as a refugee or a special immigrant visa applicant. But if you don't, if you come to the U.S. otherwise, um, you are coming in on something called humanitarian parole. Now, that's not even a visa. It's just sort of a form of temporary permission to be here. It does not result in any kind of permanent immigration status. So, you know, that's an issue. All these people are going to have to be connected with immigration lawyers to apply for asylum or apply for some other kind of visa uh, once they're here or else they'll fall out of status. But more immediately, it also means, yeah, exactly, that they, you know, because they're not a, a sort of form of formal visa holder, that they're not going to get any kind of government assistance. And so um, these organizations are sort of scraping together private donations to, to make it work for them. Uh, back to those organizations, uh, there was a lot of cutbacks that they've had in the past few years. So 
uh, like I said, they're in that ramp up stage, getting volunteers and, and other staffing so that they can help with the influx. Um, and, and on this other side of things, the, the, the good part is that they've been seeing a lot of uh, people, a lot of uh, Americans stepping up, saying that they want to help volunteer time, space, everything that they can possibly do. Right. It's a two-sided story. So, you know, there, there are nine formal refugee resettlement organizations that have contracts with the federal government. There are obviously many more um, that do work alongside these organizations. But the ones that, you know, they're, they're names that you'd be familiar with, the International Rescue Committee, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the Lutheran Church uh, does this work, the Catholic Church does this work. Um, they get paid by the government according to directly according to how many refugees they resettle. And under, you know, President Trump, there were fewer and fewer refugees to resettle. And so all of these organizations had to cut down staff, had to close offices. And so they came into this this current crisis sort of with fewer means than they would have had um, previous to now. Um, The flip side of that is that, you know, they're they're short staffed, but they're getting flooded with donations, with requests to volunteer with offers even, you know, I've, I've heard from a lot of people that uh, ordinary Americans, a lot of veterans are stepping forward and saying, you know, I have a I have an empty apartment that I own or I have a spare room in my house and I'd like a refugee to be able to stay here for a few weeks or whatever. And we're seeing major U.S. companies step up as well. We already heard about Airbnb saying that they're going to house up to 20,000 Afghan refugees possibly. And uh, Walmart is also trying to step up with some programs as well. Right, exactly. And I think we'll we'll see more of that as time goes on. You know, it's a it's a pretty politi- politically popular cause to support these Afghan refugees. I'd say probably more bipartisan than most other immigration issues. And so it it's an easy one for, you know, uh, corporate America to get involved in. And on that front, you know, the political side of things, I mean, really anything that needs to be changed with regards to the visas or, um, you know, even uh, allowing some of these uh, Afghans that don't have that special immigrant visa. I mean, any of those changes are going to have to be run through Congress, right? That's right. So there's a big urgent push. The most urgent push is to try to change the law for um, these people who received humanitarian parole. And the U.S. is estimating it might grant parole up to 50,000 people to try to get Congress to give those people the same services afforded to other refugees. And then eventually, you know, this, it's very early in the conversations, but there are obviously some people advocating um, that these people be given some kind of path to citizenship because right now there is no direct path. Michelle Hackman, reporter covering immigration at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. On the COVID front, the demand for deworming drug ivermectin has been surging to more than 80,000 prescriptions per week. Pharmacists have been reporting shortages of the drug, which is used in small doses in humans to treat lice, scabies, and other parasites, but most commonly used in animals. For more on the surging demand, despite studies showing that it does little to treat COVID, we'll speak to Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times. We are seeing a trend across the country in which prescriptions for ivermectin are sharply on the rise. 
Earlier in August, they jumped to a number of more than 88,000 prescriptions per week. And that's up from a pre-pandemic baseline average of 3,600 per week. So that's a huge rise in people who are being prescribed ivermectin. And the important thing to know here is that it has repeatedly failed in clinical trials to help people infected with coronavirus. So there hasn't been quality evidence confirming yet that ivermectin works either to treat or prevent COVID. How did this get started? You know, where did the popularity of it come from that so much so that patients are acting, asking for it? And, and even the doctors, some doctors are actually prescribing it out. It's one of those things that is quickly spreading on social media in a lot of Facebook groups and on Reddit. There's been a lot of attention to ivermectin. What physicians and researchers are most concerned about right now is people actually taking the veterinary formulation, which is often at dosages far higher than are appropriate for human consumption. And in some cases, then they are overdosing and they are calling poison control centers, reporting all kinds of problems, including nausea, diarrhea, a lot of other issues. So the real risk here in particular is around people taking veterinary formulation. But then again, it also, even the the human formulation has not been approved by the FDA to treat COVID. So physicians are saying that people should not be seeking this out to treat and prevent COVID right now, um, since there's no indication that it's been approved by the FDA for use. And the FDA even said something, uh, or I think the CDC or the FDA was even trying to acknowledge it last week as well. To your point, Mississippi's health department said that earlier this month, 70% of their calls to their poison control center had come from people who ingested ivermectin that they got from livestock supply stores. So people are going out and seeking the animal version of this. That is exactly right. People are going out on their own and seeking it. And that is at great risk to their health. I spoke with a toxicologist in South Texas who said that while in 2019, the poison control center where he works received just 191 calls about ivermectin. This year, they've gotten 260 calls just to date. So they're on pace to reach 390 calls about ivermectin by the end of the year. That's a huge jump up. And he said the vast majority of those are people who are, like you said, going out and getting it from livestock supply stores. Tell me a little bit more about the drug. When were you first introduced to this? It apparently won a Nobel Prize for medicine as well. Yes, that's right. That was in 2015. And and that was for the discovery of the parasitic diseases that it can combat in humans. And actually, it's, it's been around as a veterinary drug since the late 1970s. The key thing here is, yes, it's been shown to work for things like scabies or parasites in humans. It has not been shown to work for COVID. And there have been a numerous trials evaluating it. There's 31 trials ongoing, but so far we don't have any quality evidence that it does work for COVID. So those prior discoveries were around its effectiveness combating parasitic diseases. Tell me a little bit more about some of those studies, because in one of them, I guess they found that ivermectin really is no better than a placebo at preventing hospitalization or prolonged stays in the emergency room. So, I mean, it's not working at all against COVID, basically. That was one of the largest trials to date that was called the TOGETHER trial, and it was halted by the Data Safety Monitoring Board on August 6th because the drug ivermectin had been shown to 
be no better than a placebo at preventing hospitalization or a prolonged stay in the emergency room for people with COVID. And I spoke with a person who led the study, Dr. Edward Mills at McMaster, who said that they actually would have discontinued it earlier had they not known about how much public interest there was in ivermectin. But he did say there was no evidence it turned up that ivermectin helped any more than a placebo at preventing hospitalization. It's crazy to think that something like this could get traction so quickly when we do have vaccines that are readily available and do help prevent the severe illness, the hospitalizations, all that other stuff. And I guess that's what, you know, health officials are really worried about is that uh, these things do gain in popularity and people are taking them in doses that they're not supposed to be taking. And obviously it could lead to bigger problems. That's one of the core things that physicians are really worried about right now is people are going and seeking this out as a form of possible prevention or treatment. There is a highly effective COVID vaccine. We know those work. The FDA fully approved the Pfizer-BioTech COVID vaccine last week for people 16 and older. An approval of Moderna's a full approval is expected in the coming weeks. So we have the vaccines. And Dr. Erwin Redliner, um, a physician in New York, what he told me is that's the only functional strategy we have for getting control of of COVID-19. It's vaccination. So that's really one of the concerns physicians have right now is if people are going out seeking drugs like ivermectin where we don't have evidence they work instead of taking the vaccines. And we, we do have a lot of evidence around the vaccines. I spoke with a pharmacist as well who said he simply doesn't understand why people are coming in and seeking out ivermectin, which hasn't been FDA approved for COVID, when we have the vaccines, which have. Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on today. Finally, for this week, we have seen the demand for another COVID treatment skyrocket in the last few weeks. Monoclonal antibodies. Some states have set up infusion centers where patients can get the treatment and are also passing rules where you can get it without a doctor's prescription. For more on how this underutilized treatment is gaining traction, we'll speak to Karen Weidtraub, health reporter at USA Today. So there are a very effective treatment for people in the earliest days of a COVID infection who are at high risk. So somebody who is over 65, who's obese, who is diabetic, who has autoimmune issues, all of those categories of people are considered at high risk for a serious infection with COVID-19. If they get these drugs within generally about three or four days after their first diagnosed or they had developed symptoms, it reduces their risk of hospitalization and death by at least 70%, which is a lot, obviously. So they're very effective. They have minimal side effects. The issue is they're difficult to deliver. Generally, they're delivered via infusion. It takes about a half hour of sitting with a drip going into your arm, and then they have to watch you for an hour to make sure you don't have a bad reaction. Because people who are getting these are highly contagious, they can't get them in a typical infusion center where you might go if you are on dialysis, for instance, or on getting cancer care. You obviously don't want to mix people with, with those conditions with people who are contagious with COVID. So they need separate facilities. And some of them are in hospital parking lots. Some of them, as you said, are in specially designed clinics. But that's been a challenge for some hospitals and medical facilities to set up these infusion centers. And what drugs are we talking about here? I know Regeneron is one of them. That's the one that President Trump was receiving when he had COVID. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he was receiving the Regeneron as well. But there's another one, too, and uh, I cannot pronounce it for the life of me. The Regeneron drug is called Regen-Cove, and the other one, Sotrovimab, 
that anything that ends in MA, the letters MAB is that's for monoclonal antibody. So the ones for, there there are three that are approved for COVID, but the one made by Lilly unfortunately no longer works against the Delta variant. So that one has been uh, is not being distributed anymore. So the Regeneron one is the one that you're likely to get if you go to a clinic or hospital at the moment. That's the va- the vast majority of the ones being distributed now are from that company. And what kind of numbers are we seeing? Because you mentioned in the article that a typical week in June. Monoclonal antibodies were given to about 10 people, and this was across the entire Houston metropolitan area. This past week, I guess, 1,200 patients were getting it in that same area. Right. I thought that was astounding, that number. Um, That's what they told me at Houston Methodist Hospital. And then nationally, Regeneron sent out about 25,000 doses a week just a month ago, and this week, 168,000 doses. So demand really is increasing substantially, unfortunately, because so many people are getting sick. With COVID, the surge, especially with the Delta variant, a lot of people are getting sick and also people at high risk for serious disease. And because of the experience that doctors had during the last surge and saw that these monoclonal antibodies were helpful, they're turning to them more eagerly now, I guess I would say, because of that success. And there's a couple of interesting actions taken in some of these states as well, where I guess a Surgeon General in Florida said, well, you don't even need a doctor's recommendation to take this. If you're sick or you feel like you're getting sick, go to an infusion center and we can treat you with this now. And I guess because uh, we up, you know, paid for a lot of these up front, it is still free to a lot of people. It should be free. Um, they cost about $2,100 a dose, but the government pre-purchased over a million and a half of these doses and there's still many available. The benefit is much greater for somebody who is at higher risk. Again, somebody who's over 65, who's obese, diabetic, immunocompromised, than it is to an otherwise healthy person who is very unlikely to end up hospitalized anyway. So well, g- generally, they're recommended for people who have some extra risk. Yeah, definitely. And, the, and, all, and all of these monoclonal antibodies have been approved under emergency use authorization. So they haven't received full approval correct. yet either, right? Yeah, the doctor in Houston was sort of laughing about the idea that a lot of the people he's treating now with monoclonal antibodies didn't want vaccines because they were approved only emer- under an emergency use authorization. But now they're, they're begging for monoclonals, which are also approved only under an emergency use authorization. Karen, I wanted to ask because I follow you on Twitter and I saw you had recently went on a vacation and it was kind of ruined by a bad test, a bad COVID test where you and I think your parents it said that you were yes. tested positive, And then later on, you got a PCR test and it came out negative. So not to name any companies or anything, but how, how did that experience go? Because uh, we had for a long time been hearing, you know, that some of these uh, quick tests aren't always as reliable. They're supposed to be very good. In this case, uh, we got caught on the wrong end of the statistics, I guess. This particular test has a three or four percent failure rate. Shouldn't happen to three of us in the same batch of tests company has told me that they're checking the batch to make sure there's not something wrong with it. But yes, I have an 86-year-old high-risk father. So when I wasn't feeling well, I got a quick test to make sure I didn't have a problem. When it was positive, we all kind of freaked out. Um, My father and mother went to the hospital to get monoclonal antibodies, actually. And there they were retested appropriately and were told they did not, in fact, have COVID. By that point, I was already five hours into my six-hour trip home. Um, And uh, so, yeah. Um, So I... (laughs) Uh, retested, got another different brand rapid test that night, and then got a PCR the next day, also negative. My brother, who had been with us the day before, spent a lot of money changing his flight back to the West Coast. So it was to avoid contaminating anyone in case he got sick. So it was a lot of chaos created from from a false positive. It's better 
clinically speaking, health-wise, to get a false positive than a false negative. False negative means you're contagious and you don't know it and you might go out and infect other people. So that's worse uh, from a societal perspective, but it definitely uh, ruined my family vacation. Yeah. Well, glad to hear everybody was healthy, at least on all of thank that. You. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>